Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 4, Episode 5. In the last episode, I dove into one of the lesser-known birds the Israelites were forbidden from eating, the cormorant. This week, I'm covering the other lesser-known fowl, the hoopoe. Also, this is the last episode on the book of Leviticus, so the last one in Chapter 4 of the podcast. And with that very short introduction, let's get started. The hoopoe is widely known for its distinctive crown of feathers. It lives on all three continents that surround the Mediterranean, so would have been familiar to the ancient Israelites. But its range isn't limited to that region, living as far south as the southern reaches of Africa and even the island of Madagascar, and as far north as the Yukon. For those of you unfamiliar with Canadian geography, that's just east of Alaska. They've also been found as high as 21,000 feet, or 6,400 meters, on Mount Everest. The hoopoes do migrate to the tropics for winter, though. Their diet consists of small insects, like grasshoppers, on both the ground and when they swarm in the air. But not just grasshoppers. Also crickets, locusts, beetles, earwigs, those noisy cicadas, ants, all sorts of bugs. They even dig into the ground to find insect larvae. But not just insect larvae. They also eat the larvae of destructive moths. Due to this portion of their diet, Overall, the hoopoe is considered a beneficial bird to most people, to the point in that many areas it's afforded legal protection. They also consume small reptiles and frogs. They will even beat larger prey against the ground or a hard surface like a rock to kill it. Overall, their diet is mostly things that crawl with their belly on the ground, which may have been one of the reasons why their consumption was forbidden in Leviticus. Of course, the hoopoe's diet isn't limited to this. Being a true omnivore, they will also eat seeds and berries. Like the cormorant, they too nest in cliffs. But they will also make a home in a tree, a wall, a nest box, a haystack, and even underground in an abandoned burrow. And these homes are found anywhere from prairies to forests to olive groves to savannas. They are truly a flexible species. Also similar to the cormorant, they are frequently seen rusting with their wings extended. But this isn't thought to be a behavior intent on drying waterlogged feathers. They will, though, frequently throw dust or sand on themselves in a sort of dust bath. They are seasonally monogamous, but will pick a different mate the next year. After laying their eggs, only the female will incubate them. And it's not just a couple of eggs, with the ladies laying anywhere from 4 to 12, depending on the climate. These eggs are incubated by their mom for about two weeks before hatching. After hatching, they're with both parents for another month or so before being kicked out of the nest and forced to support themselves. I'd never really given it any thought before this episode, but to go from egg-laying to empty nesters over the span of a couple months is rather mind-boggling. To them, they know no different. It's their normal. They are also very territorial, to the point that males, and even sometimes females, when competing for the same territory, will chase and fight. 
and even stabbed their rivals with their bills, sometimes aiming for the eyes in order to blind their opponent. That's rough. And that's not their only unconventional behavior. They ward off predators with a foul scent. Incubating and brooding females, along with nestlings, produce a foul-smelling liquid. The secretion is said to smell of rotting meat and may not only deter predators, but also parasites, and may even have the added benefit of being a sort of antibacterial ointment. Nestlings stop producing the secretion shortly before leaving the nest. You're on your own, kid. But this defense is augmented by the ability to shoot streams of, um, let's say poop, at intruders. You really can't make this up. This may be another reason why they weren't allowed to be consumed in both Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Despite this, the bird is the national bird of the modern state of Israel. Besides their mention, well, really their potential mention depending on the translation from the original Hebrew, hoopoes were well known to other ancients, a list that includes the ancient Egyptians. To them, the hoopoe was considered sacred, with the bird being depicted in art adorning the walls of tombs and temples. During the Old Kingdom, the hoopoe was used in their iconography as a symbol to designate a specific child as the heir to the throne, so the successor to his father. This sacredness wasn't limited to Egypt, as similar iconography has been found on the island of Crete and dating to about the same time. The hupo also makes an appearance in the Muslim Quran, where it is sometimes called a hudhud. And in this text, it's not merely mentioned, but quoted, which is worthy of a quote. In the Quran's book of Sarah Anamo, it reads, And he took attendance of the birds and said, Why do I not see the hupo? Or is he among the absent? I will surely punish him with a severe punishment, or slaughter him unless he brings me clear authorization. But the hoopoe stayed not long and said, I have an encompassed in knowledge, that which you have not encompassed, and I have come to you from Sheba with certain news. Indeed, I found there a woman ruling them, and she had been given of all things, and she has a great throne, and I found her and her people prostrating to the sun instead of Allah. And Satan has made their deeds pleasing to them and inverted them from his way. So they are not guided. End quote. And the queen in this case, as seen in the text, is the Queen of Sheba, which I've mentioned several times before and no doubt will cover again. A little further east in ancient Persia, the hoopoes were seen as a symbol of virtue, at least in their surviving literature. In the Persian book of poems known as the Conference of the Birds, when all birds sought a king, the hoopoe was depicted as the leader, as well as the wisest, and noted that a specific bird named Seamwork was the king of the birds. And you should listen to this hoopoe, lest you get your eye poked out. That last part was not in the literature, and is merely my editorialized edition. This kingbird is sometimes presented as the mythical phoenix. But that's not to say the hoopoe's the phoenix. It's the bird the hoopoe pointed to as the kingbird, which may be the phoenix. The view of the hoopoe in Europe was drastically different, 
where they were thought of as thieves. And this was even worse in Scandinavia, where they were seen as omens of war. But in other areas, it was worse still. In the northeastern European country of Estonia, hupos are traditionally connected with death in the underworld. This is because their song is believed to foreshadow death for many people along with cattle. In other areas of Europe, they were generally thought of as an evil bird. In medieval Germany, in an ancient book of magic spells known modernly as the Munich Manual of Demonic Magic, many incantations required the sacrifice of a hupo to summon demons and perform other magic. The bird also makes appearances in ancient Greek literature, all the way up to 20th century English literature, which gets me to my saturation point on hoopos. Time to move along. The last new topic in Leviticus is perhaps the most problematic, that of the Canaanite deity Moloch, sometimes seen as Moloch, Milcom, or Malcolm. And in my mind, the presentation is problematic in its similarity to Azazel, to whom the scapegoat was taken. It's really odd, especially in our modern culture, to think of the Old Testament as mentioning the deities of other cultures. But that's what happens here. As a refresher, in Leviticus chapter 2, God tells Moses that if, quoting, any of the people of Israel, or of the aliens who reside in Israel, who give any of their offspring to Molech shall be put to death. The people of the land shall stone them to death. I myself will set my face against them and will cut them off from the people because they have given of their offspring to Molech, defiling my sanctuary and profaning my holy name. And if the people of the land should ever close their eyes to them, when they give of their offspring to Molech and do not put them to death, I myself will set my face against them and against their family, and will cut them off from among their people, them and all who follow them in prostituting themselves to Moloch. From this passage, the concept of Moloch is clearly seen as including that of child sacrifice. There are similar passages in both 1st and 2nd Kings, along with the book of Jeremiah and a passing mention in the New Testament book of Acts. But that's about the only part that's clear. The rest of what's believed about Moloch depends on who you ask. Some posit it was an Ammonite deity known as the Great King. Others suggest it may have been a deity represented as a bull. Rabbinical tradition holds that Moloch was a hollow brass or bronze statue heated with fire into which the victims were thrown. It's this tradition that the 12th century rabbi Rashi wrote, Moloch, which was made of brass, and they heated him from his lower parts, and his hands being stretched out and made hot, they put the child between his hands, and it was burnt. When it vehemently cried out, but the priest beat a drum, that their father might not hear the voice of his son, and his heart might not be moved. End quote. But Rashi wasn't the only rabbinic writer. There's also the somewhat legendary German rabbi Simeon, who's thought to have written that the idol was hollow and divided into seven compartments, in one of which they put flour, the second turtle doves, the third a ewe, 
the fourth a ram, the fifth a calf, the sixth an ox, and the seventh a child, which were all burned together by heating the statue inside. All of this the ancient version of the somewhat mythical brazen bull, maybe even the source of that legend. There is a bit of archaeological evidence that supports this theory, beginning with the writings of Greco-Roman authors on child sacrifices in the Phoenician city of Carthage, sacrifices to their deity of Baal Haman. But this specific identification of this deity with the biblical Molech is a modern interpretation. Overall, trying to tie together history from two different eras, from the Bronze Age Canaan, what is mentioned in Leviticus, to the Iron Age Carthage, in reality, they may be completely different or just merely coincidentally similar. Other researchers have relied on an interpretation that Moloch and Baal were essentially the same, with Moloch being the fire god version of Baal. And of course, not only have I already covered Baal, but this particular deity gets more mentions in the Old Testament than I care to recount at this point. Circling back to Carthage, the child sacrifices there was first thought to have been simply Greek propaganda against their enemies, but now these writings are supported by evidence uncovered in 20th century archaeological excavations in Carthage. Reportedly uncovered in these excavations were urns that contained both the bones of animals and children. There was also a 4th century stela that depicted a child sacrifice. The evidence includes the initials MLK, thought to refer to Malcolm, perhaps the same as Molech. There is also the Phoenician idol Cronus, which has a similar mythology of devouring his own children. But this is a bit of a stretch of a connection, and the whole Carthaginian child sacrifice story is still based largely on contemporary Greco-Roman writings. I'll let you draw your own opinions. There are other similar regional myths. This included a 13th century BC temple in what is today Amman, Jordan, that appears to show both animal and human sacrifice. And this date would be about right for the reference in Leviticus. There's also the theory that Molech may have been of Ugaritic origin. Of course, there wasn't a clear line of delineation between many of these ancient societies, and among the many things they may have shared were deities, along with other religious practices. Combine all of these together, and you get to the 17th century, where the name, along with the initials MLK, are thought to be one and the same as the word for king in the ancient Hebrew text of the Old Testament. Hence why Molech, Moloch, Milcom, and Malcolm are now believed to be derivatives of the same base Canaanite and potentially Phoenician deity. These same modern interpretations are split on whether the child sacrifice was literal, or if it was the Canaanite version of a purification ritual where the children were merely passed over the burning idol. Last week, in covering the Cumarant, I mentioned that John Milton's 17th century novel Paradise Lost had the Cumarant as a form of Satan, sitting atop the Tree of Life, spying on the first couple. Milton also used Moloch in a similar form of symbology, in this case as one of Satan's greatest warriors. 
Milton also names him as an Ammonite deity who tricked King Solomon into following him to the point that the wisest man built a temple to the child-eater on the Temple Mount, next to Solomon's great temple to God. But Milton wasn't done. The book posits that hell has a parliament, which is an interesting concept, as it implies it's a bit of a democracy. In my mind, a demimarcacy. But I digress. During one of the parliamentary sessions, Molech, one of the chiefs of Satan's angels, gives a speech where he argues for immediate warfare against God. He later becomes revered as a pagan god on earth. And if you have the time and can stomach the old English, Paradise Lost may be worth the trouble of a read. After World War II, the former British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, in his book chronicling the history of the conflict titled in the gathering storm. Churchill described Hitler's ascension to total German authority in 1933 as being from, quoting, the depths of defeat, the dark and savage furies latent in the most numerous, most serviceable, ruthless, contradictory, and ill-starred race in Europe. He had conjured up the fearful idol of an all-devouring Moloch, of which he was the priest in incarnation. End quote. Honestly, most descriptions of Moloch to this point have seemed a bit overkillish, except for the literal child sacrifice, but this one, using Moloch as an analogy of Hitler, is underwhelming. The 20th century tyrant was far worse than a bronze statue can conjure. Finally, in our modern society, Moloch has been viewed as a symbol of death and destruction, from the ravages of accidental automobile deaths to a metaphor for modern industrialization, which has been called the modern Moloch, to innumerable mentions in modern literature, overall encompassing the concept of something that requires an enormous sacrifice. And that leaves two more topics for Leviticus, blasphemy and the festival of trumpets, both of which I'll get to next week. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.